Live from the center of the earth, girth. Hello and welcome, Heidi. Hi. How's it going? It's okay, Sammy. How are you doing? All right. You survived another TCAF. I guess I did. Yeah. Uh, I've been here since Thursday and um, in beautiful Toronto and just having the best time uh, as a New Yorker. This is like New York without all the really nasty parts. <laughs> Although everyone tells me that's an illusion, but um, it's just such a pleasure to come here. And of course, TCAF is off the charts. The Toronto reputation tends to be that it's like New York, but clean. Yes. That's, I think that's kind of what you're alluding to. Yes, yes, yes. And every, you, I mean, seriously, the hospitality here is in, insane. Um, I mean, New York, you know, New Yorkers are actually very hospitable and we are very good to tourists. I said, you know, knocking wood, but, um, you know, we like to, we help, we're helpful. Uh, it, it freaks me out a little bit because one time I was looking for something and I, I had to stop and pull out like a map just to see where where the location was and where I was going. And so this dude, nice clothes and everything like this. He stopped and he's like, you need some help, sir? I can help you, whatever. <laughs> and it kind of freaked me out. I was like, yo, go step away. Like, I'm like <laughs> I just wasn't used to the niceness at yeah. first. No, if we see somebody reading a map, uh, we will we will help them out. However, if you suddenly show that you're... Uh, can you swear on this podcast? Yes. Okay. If it's you, online radio. Okay. All right. Online radio. If you suddenly show that you're an asshole, then we turn against you very quickly. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it is the it is the democracy of the crowd, and when it's uh, when you show that you're just a total asshole, then we are allowed to treat you like a ass. So, you know, it's just the survival of the fittest. That's fair, though, isn't it? <laughs> that's gen- that's a general rule, anyways. Though. Yeah. Yeah. It is a little more. Uh, yeah. In New York, I think the worst thing I I know we're rambling about stuff, but the worst thing I ever saw in New York was as you came out of the subway and at rush hour, it's very, very crowded as you go up the steps. And I was trying to get up and it was stopped. It was just like nobody could get up. The crowd was milling. And I saw it was a woman with a child, like of perhaps two, who was just learning how to climb stairs. And she was teaching the child on the subway. Oh, come on. And I said, not that any child deserves to be injured, but I was to say, should the child be trampled? It would be very questionable as to whether it was child abuse or not. So, <laughs> yes. a little on the line. Yes. So now that you know that I'm a heartless ass, um... we're on our way now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> this introduction is going a lot easier than I thought it was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you also did poutine. Yes, we did poutine. We did poutine. Um, I the first time I came to Toronto was probably ten years ago, and that was my first time with poutine. Um, I'm not a big gravy fan. So that's impeded my 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 experience of poutine a bit, but this time we decided to. But we had one in our number who had never had poutine. Yeah, you got to try it, that's right? Like... And and <laughs> and this is actually, uh, if anybody listened to this, it's, it was Cal, Calvin Reed, who I do a podcast with, back for Publishers Weekly. Uh, uh that's called More to Come to plug my own podcast, and um. Uh, Calvin was like, oh, I never had poutine. And then he saw the poutine and was like, hey, this stuff's pretty good. (laughs) It's surprising for all the different cultures and different ethnic people uh, in New York City, whatever, and different restaurants and all that stuff. Gravy's hard to come by in New York City. Yeah, we're not as gravy-centric. Yeah, not as much. Uh, what, what? What? I mean, poutine is really just for like cold nights, though, right? Isn't it like a survival food or something? Oh, it's like uh, it's for anything, really. Like you having a good day, poutine. You having a bad day, poutine. Right? <laughs> it's just kind of like whatever the whatever reason you want to. It's like you're having a beer, basically. Right, right, right. Well, I could see that. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't make a steady diet of it, but uh, we had some pretty good poutine while we were here. Okay, this place where we're recording, the Pacific Junction Hotel. Uh, bar they have poutine spring rolls so it's a spring roll and inside it is the poutine wow yeah <laughs> okay something to uh, consider after uh, we're done here yes <laughs> a lot to try you did uh you were here obviously for tcaf and you recently tweeted out uh great times at tcaf it filled me with so much pride hope and respect yes what did you mean by that okay well every year i i do say tcaf is the uh, number one comic show in North America. It's a fantastic show. Yeah. And I mean, I say that with all due respect to San Diego Comic-Con. Uh, I would say TCAF and San Diego Comic-Con are the two greatest comic shows in North America. And I say that even though New York Comic-Con is my local, but nowhere near either of them because of a lot of things. Um, so TCAF is the first time I came here six years ago. 
I was blown away, just blown away by what Chris Butcher and the Beguiling staff had done. Uh, Beguiling is the comic shop that that sponsors the event. So uh, I think six years ago, there was a lot of pride for indie comics and making that. And I feel like this year, there was so much, such a wide range of people making comics. And it was almost overwhelming a little bit, like I just because it was three floors, yeah, and it was just it was a lot, yeah, it was, but I mean also just like the the um you know the number of of queer comics cartoonists there, and you know the just the range of of you know ethnicities of colors of everything I mean it really was just people making comics and uh, and just expressing themselves in so so wonderful a way, and just and talking about really important ideas and themes as well. So uh, I mean, I would say pride. It's like you know, I've been in comics a long time, and to see to see it at this point, and and educators as well. You know, like educators who they're talking about learning about comics, and so you know, so pride for that, love because I love comics, and just respect for everybody who's getting out there and and doing it. You know, fearlessly. What was the spark for you? What was like the seduction of the innocent for you? Like that got you into like comic books? Well, um, my mother was an artist. My mother was a, a, a painter, but she also did comics, actually. So uh, underground comics. And um, so, uh, you know, I grew up in the 70s, so give away my age. But she loved comics. My grandmother loved comics. You know, I got into comics because of the women in my family. My grandfather, who I was raised by my grandparents and my mother, uh, my grandfather wasn't as much into them, oddly enough. He liked newspaper strips, you know, so it's kind of the opposite of what you might expect. And uh, so they were always comics friendly. And it was a different time, really. There was great kids comics at that point, And I just loved it. What were your what were the women in your family reading? Well, my mother loved um, pretty much what I love. Uh, and I'm sure when she hears about this, she'll listen to it also. So hi, mom, because she she's she's always um, happy Mother's Day one day late. Um, she liked what I liked at Carl Barks. She liked Little Lulu was this co- the comic by John Stanley, uh, which is an absolute classic. Um, and as I got older, she liked, she did like what I like. She was really into things like she liked Howard the Duck was another comic that I got into. And then later in the eighties when Indiques came out, Love and Rockets is one of her favorite comics. So, yeah. You know, she likes good comics. I'd have to say. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty cool mom. Yeah, she is. She's a very cool mom, actually. It's funny because that's a weird parental thing where, like, a parent will kind of give a child some of the culture and some, like, little touchstones and stuff like that. And then as a child kind of gets older, then they bring some different things home, different types of music, different types of comics. Mm-hmm. And then if the better parents sometimes are the ones that are more open receptive, mm-hmm. then they start being influenced by what the kid brings home. Right. And, and it starts to shift. That's always an interesting shift. Yeah, it is. And I, one of the things at TCAF that we were talking about is um, second generation manga. You know, like the manga revolution started in the United States about the late 90s with Sailor Moon. So this is going on 20 years ago. So some of the the women who were reading manga back then are now parents raising their own kids. And uh, and also nostalgia. They're getting, you know, Sailor Moon is big again. I mean, some of the titles that are big are back. And they are obviously accepting of their kids into it. And so we were definitely seeing like this kind of generation of, of manga. And manga for adult women jose manga um and you know even men some men actually read comics now uh i found so do you read do you read comics sammy yeah i do (laughs) oh wow that's unusual a man reading comics there you go i know (laughs) i'm a unicorn (laughs) it happens yeah 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 how do you then go from like reading comics and kind of inheriting some from your from the ladies in your family to like then kind of writing about comics and kind of doing like taking the critical path? Because mm-hmm. most people generally when they when they are kind of influenced by comics, or whatever, they want to actually start creating them and putting them out. You kind of took a slightly different path and kind of took the more criticism. Right. Route. Right. Well, I'm um, because I was surrounded by artists in my family and I did not have artistic talent. So it wasn't really an option for me to be an artist because, uh, you know, I couldn't fake it at all in my family. Like my family is super talented. Like they're all musicians or actors or writers or something or, you know, theater. Like they do all things. Jewelry makers. Um, so I couldn't fake art. So writing really had to be the way I went uh, with that. And 
You know, I get asked this question a lot, and I would say that one of the things that's really interesting is that coming to shows like TCAF or, you know, San Diego, going and talking to people and meeting people, new people, uh, I learn more about the answer to that question and about myself and why I maybe got into this, because it's pretty unusual to be a writer about comics. The reason why you start something is usually not the reason why you continue doing it. Yes, yes, yes. You know, like you do it for a lark, and then it's, you do it, end up doing it your whole adult life. So... <laughs> Uh, so I would I would say it just was something I wrote. I loved comics. I loved pop culture. I mean, I loved boy things that were quote unquote boy stuff. I loved baseball cards. I loved wrestling. I loved, you know, fantasy. I loved Lord of the Rings. I loved all these things that were more considered boy culture. And uh, you know, I loved comics, and I just was like had a lot of opinions. <laughs> and I just wrote a piece that was a review, and I sent it to the Comics Journal, which was the number one. Um, magazine about comics at the time and uh, they published it. That was it. You know, it's the first thing I ever wrote, the first thing I ever submitted anywhere. And back in these days, you would have to type out something and if you made a mistake, you had white stuff that you put over the mistakes and <laughs> you would have to retype it and then you would make a carbon copy, which is what I did, and then you would have put it in an envelope and put a stamp on it. And it's very complicated process. You don't miss those days at all. Do oh you? boy, I hate going to the post office. The email was the greatest. I was so ready for email the day I was born. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I had success. I think also, like you say, what you you start out um, and continue for different reasons. I think also people. Well, I was also into music. That was another thing that I was really good at, and I tried to pursue, but. Uh, as time went on, like, you know, I mean, I know you have music here and, you know, talking, you probably, you know, like anytime you're involved in the music industry, it's so complicated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and like, if you're a musician, you have to write music. You have to be good at that. You have to learn how to play music and be good at that. You have to learn how to promote yourself and be good at that. And I mean, people who are good at it, it's easy. It comes second nature. It did not come second nature to me. And writing was the easiest thing I've ever done, except talking on radio shows. So that's really the easiest thing ever. <laughs> it helps. I give you a beer now, right? So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can chill and yeah. hang out. What was the first piece you wrote about for the comics journal? Oh, it was a review of Murata the she wrote Murata the She Wolf by Chris Claremont and John Bolton. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and um, it was uh, I was super into like archetypal theory and Jungian analysis, Joseph Campbell, all that stuff back that was so big back in the day. So I was all about you know Murata, and you know how she encountered her dark side. I mean, it was really the I'm sure if I were to read it now, it's the most pretentious thing ever in history. And, you know, I, I it's funny, though, I do remember writing because this was kind of I think they started to I don't know the backstory to Murata. I think they started to do a Red Sonia story and then for some reason couldn't do it. So they're like, oh, let's just make our own character and we'll do it for for Epic Comics, which was a um, a kind of creator online that Marvel did back in the 80s. And uh, so it was really like this typical kind of narrative that what we call now has the tropes of rape and like, you know, she gets raped and then she's like, well, I will be a hero and I will kill my rapist. And uh, of course, nowadays, no one would even countenance such a dumb story, you know, like, why does it have to have this theme? And I remember at the time I wrote, I just the one thing I remember about this piece is I wrote, you know, one thing that really bugs me about this story is the rape theme. Like, why does she have to be raped to be a hero? Why can't she just be a hero? You know? And so uh, I know they meant well, but you know, now it's it's interesting to me. And another thing I learned at, at TCAP was that what maybe when I was growing up might be called an archetype is now called, you know, a trope. And it might be a good trope or a bad trope or just a dumb trope. And it's really interesting seeing how readers today are more are, are much less accepting of of things that are so easy like that, you know. And and I mean, of course, like rape narratives and rape culture are like totally so stupid and horrible and uh damaging there's also people with kind of playing around with stuff like being very meta too right mm -hmm. like yeah like there's also that kind of awareness too which we didn't really have where kind of people are playing it on the nose too yeah 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 we're like i'm in a comic book like wink wink <laughs> yeah 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 i mean you know that was done um i mean well scott pilgrim you know to name the the local favorite 
um, was uh, obviously such a, uh, you know, he played with that whole level and with video games and, and the storytelling. And, and he made it fresh and new. And, and But I see people trying to do that sometimes in their comics and it's not as fresh and new. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's when you got to add the wink wink at the end there that it's like you, if you have to kind of do that or like that was the punchline, then right. you kind of flopped a little bit. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, there's all different levels of uh, storytelling and in that way. And it's really interesting to me. I mean, that's what keeps me doing it, I guess, is because I love seeing how these things develop and how how things are. Um, like I said, like people, readers today will just won't stand for that. I won't stand for like these these um, just regressive ideas, you know, and, and things that are are you know problematic get called out right away. But why do writers or editors or publishers, whoever you want to throw under the bus for that, like why do they kind of keep returning to some of those ideas though? There's got to be a reason why, isn't well, there? Is it just laziness? I think it's I think it's that, but I also think that I think there's somewhere in the middle of all of this, you know? I mean, I think people have to work through things, and I think like I think some of the things that I mean, I do go back to Bettelheim and his use of fairy tales. And I mean, I know a lot of this thinking is not in vogue right now. So and I haven't read enough to know how it's been um, revamped or, you know, how it's it's taken. So I'm anyone who listens to this is going to hate me. So I'll, I'll put that right in there. But I question I you know, I'm a, I'm a journalist and I do question everything. You know, I don't take it. I don't just don't take it at face value. I, I always like have to weigh it against other things in the past and possibilities. So I think in storytelling that I think some people are still working through their own issues, you know, and they might have been raised in a way that was um, not as open minded or not as progressive as it should have been. And so they still have these issues that they haven't identified. And in their storytelling, I think there's still I mean, these are issues that people do deal with. You know, and I don't think it does any good to say they don't exist, but obviously they need to be addressed and they need to be, um, you know, they, now I'm, now I'm losing the word, but, uh, you know, they need, they need to be, uh, admitted and just like dealt with, you know, in a way that, that to, to, to move forward. It's more almost like storytelling therapy. You know, I mean, why did Chris Claremont write so many rape stories. I mean, why are so many, I mean, you know, X-Men have traumas and, you know, Storm is the orphan and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, in some ways trauma makes a hero. I mean, it is true that trauma makes a hero. I and mean, male heroes have trauma. Unfortunately, so many times the trauma is because their wife or their daughter or their, their woman got killed, you know? So like, like what, what is the source of this, this trope? I mean, it's partly just how we value women in society, obviously, but it's also like like men aren't able to process it, I don't think, except in this very destructive way. Well, so I think it's also just a very easy like visual, I guess. Like it, like if we go moving away from that slightly, but just like when Uncle Ben died, right? When mm -hmm. Spider-Man, it's like then now he has this reason to become Spider-Man and it's a very easy sell and... You just right. kind of go on your way, right. and the audience gets it. Uh, Bruce Wayne's parents, when they got the peril, hit the sidewalk, and then the mom's dead, whatever. Then yeah. boom, it makes sense. The audience gets it, and now he has quote unquote enough motivation and enough mm -hmm. reason to be Batman. Oh yeah, absolutely. And if you notice, a lot of heroes who don't have that uh, are not as successful characters. I would say Green Lantern is a great example. A character that I never had any interest in whatsoever. But I knew a lot of guys who really love Green Lantern. And I was trying to get to the bottom of why they love him so much. And I do understand, you know, I mean, this when they made the movie, <laughs> you know, I went to go see it. I was curious. And this is, man, I don't know if you want to talk about, you know, superheroes and media. But, you know, this was a huge movie for Warner Brothers and the development of all that. And Ryan Reynolds for him too as well. Like he need to kind of get out there and kinda... right. Well, right. And you know, the first time he struck out, and uh, but with Deadpool, he was you know right on. You know, this guy's a two time. He's yeah. Deadpool and he's Green Lantern. Um, but you watch the movie and you're like, okay, so he looks like Ryan Reynolds, and he's a great test pilot, and he's dating um Blake Lively, and. Uh, he works for her father's company, and uh, his problem is. 
uh, you flew too fast one day. Wow. Oh, my God. This is like heartbreak. I mean, just how are you going to overcome this? And, you know, Jeff Johns, to his credit, saw the flaw in this. And I know he added the whole father issue with Green Lantern, which is, yeah, I mean, the guy has no problems. It's like, oh, hello, I'm a member of the International Space Police now, and we're going to train you how to be a space policeman. You're going to fly around the galaxy and have fun and adventures in your magical powers where anything you imagine you can make. This is just so much conflict. I mean, the guy has... I mean, how do you sympathize with this character? Right. You know? Uh, <laughs> so, uh, sorry, Green Lantern fans. But anyway, Jeff did add an element of um, his father issues, having father issues, and which is great. I mean, he had to have some level of pain. But even so, when you watch the movie, you're like, what is this guy's problem? It's like, oh, you're training, and like you didn't... Like, the funny-looking guy with the chicken head yelled at you, and you felt... You went home to your gigantic loft apartment and sulked like, wow, I am like my heart is breaking for you, buddy. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) that makes sense, though. So then if it doesn't if it doesn't come from the common tropes, then I guess then you just got to add something like Green Lantern, like his issues with his dad then or you try and find something. You know, I don't know. You know, I'm I'm not a storyteller. I'm not I'm an editor. I mean, I have edited comics. Um, One of the comics I worked on was Why the Last Man um, in its early phases. And uh, I mean, I don't even have to take credit for that. You know, Brian Vaughn is a genius and Pia Guerra uh, did a fantastic job. So, I mean, I had zero to do with that book, except for saying this is a great idea. (laughs) So, um, you know, I'm not sure. Like I say, I see a transition going on with how people approach their storytelling and guardians of the galaxy volume two is a perfect example which has huge father issues in it right and uh i was very lukewarm on the movie i loved the characters i loved what they were doing uh i mean i love the laughter i love chris pratt i love zoe Saldana. drax was you know laughing my ass off uh but i was like where's the story uh what i what is like you sitting i literally fell asleep in the movie i lit i mean i'm not I literally fell asleep. I was in one of those really comfy recliner chairs, like out. And I was like, oh, oh ego. No, uh, what is ego doing? Um, <laughs> Falling asleep generally the review. And to me, that was a flaw. It was a flaw that there was not enough drama, not enough tension. Um, but then other people I talked to just loved it because they loved the characters. And that's all they wanted was to see the characters having fun and doing fun things. And... So I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to understand that. To me, I like drama. I mean, I'm old. I'm old and old school. So I like drama and conflict and, you know, like Star Trek. Basically, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is an episode of Star Trek. It's exactly the episode of you cross who mourns for Adonis and the Squire of Gotham. Or, yeah, Squire. Yeah. Of Gothos. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. yeah. Sammy just nodded his head. Um, and for two- good reference. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I've been rewatching Star Trek. And but then on all of those there's tension and danger and like a ticking time bomb of what's going to happen. Whereas in guardians, there's literally no ticking time bomb. It's like, so what's happening here? Uh, well, I don't know. I'm going to talk to my dad, you know, see what he says. Okay. Well, you know what? We'll just go run through this meadow. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, (laughs) let's have some sexual tension now. Great idea. Um, and, uh, then suddenly like, you know what? This is great. I love it. I'm going to be a God. This is so cool. Like, yeah, that's great. Thanks dad. Yeah. You know what? That's great. You know? And, and I guess killing your mom was, you know, worth it. Like, what? You killed my mom? Yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> you just save people money from going to see the movie. I know. I'm sorry yeah. if you have, but you saw it already. Come on, people. Like, spoiler. So I want to go back to, so you didn't decide to flip the switch and be, uh, into go into journalism and comic journalism. But at the time, too, there wasn't always, like, a lot of stuff. There was, like, Wizard back in the day, and that was more, like, kind of, like, almost like a giant commercial for right. like stuff Marvel and DC and everything was kind of doing. Uh, the journal, obviously, where you submitted your stuff, they were doing some legitimate criticism, doing some real mm-hmm. interviews and things like that. Was it kind of intimidating kind of going into a field like that where there really wasn't a field? I mean, movies have had like lots of criticisms and critics for years, mm-hmm. whereas comics kind of took a little while to get going, even as, they, as the medium was exploding. Well, I mean, to me, it was more exciting to be a pioneer. And to be able to write about things that no one had inv- had written about or, you know, hopefully make some kind of, um, you know, discoveries. Uh, I think you said you had Scott McCloud here. Yeah. Yeah. So Scott and I 
uh, and Ivy were pals back in the day. And, you know, before Understanding Comics came out, and we talked a lot about this stuff, and uh, he definitely was an influence on my criticism and, you know, his talk about how the medium worked. And um, I did, I'm super lucky in that I got to, you know, be friends. I mean, you know, this is like a long time ago in comics. I mean, you know, it's 30 years ago. Like, again, showing my age. Uh, and there weren't as many people in it. So, you know, if you were at the bar, you would be at San Diego, you would be hanging out with Scott McCloud and Will Eisner and, you know, Rick Veach and Todd McFarlane. I mean, you know, uh, it, so that's just who was in the bar. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, like those were the people who were around. Um, so, yeah, I was more excited to do it as kind of, you know, discovering things. And I think... We're now really moving into a very exciting, exciting time. So just to circle back when you asked me why I stuck with this. So at the conference at TCAF, they had this library and um, educators day conference that I hung out with. And I met quite a few of the people who were involved in it. And there was a lot of scholarly talk about ver verbal thinking versus visual thinking and how comics cross over. You know, they're being used in schools. Um, I mean, if you think about it, Mouse is by Sarah Spiegelman. It's about, you know, his parents being in the Holocaust, being in a concentration camp. And this is one of the major texts about the Holocaust that's still, st I mean, it's not like among comics. I mean, among texts about the Holocaust. And so comics really have become uh, uh, an important medium. Here in Canada, we have a L'Oreal comic book. Uh, I think it's Chester Brown. Yes, yes. <clears throat> um, and that one did. That one made a lot of noise as well for the same reason the mouse did because mm -hmm. it was just it was telling the same story, but it just kind of opened it up and like, it was a whole different perspective, right? For people right. to kind of see it, and then now you have this kind of visual narrative that goes along with the storyline, right? Mouse was very moving because you now see people being persecuted, and it's it's a lot harder to kind of walk away from an image like that. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the animal, of course, metaphor also, I mean, that was the genius of Mouse is that that he broke down the prejudices that you had, you know, like if there were any lingering prejudices by putting them in animal form, it caught, you know, forces you to confront this even more, um, more directly. Um, Louis Real, I love that book. I mean, Chester is such a crazy man. You know, did anybody, I mean, like, how did his book on prostitution go over here? Did anyone read that? Um, that one I didn't really hear much about. I think if that kind of just went a little bit under the radar, I think if people didn't know what to do with that, so they're like, we're just gonna let this go and we'll just like pimp out, yeah. we'll just like focus on Louis Riel and then like call it a day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I know there's a book here now that I haven't read, but I want to. That's by Gord Downey and Le Jeff Lemire. The Secret Path. Yeah. Yeah. Which I've heard has really made a splash. Mm hmm. Uh, that's another one that's similar to Mouse because it's an, it's quote unquote an untold story. Of how we've kind of been dealing with our native in Indians and like we've been really bad to them actually. But I mean, you guys too in America. Yeah, right? like, yeah, we're no angels. Let me believe. Yeah, we're, we're worse. I don't know. It's a competition, sadly. Right. So it just was kind of dealing with one of the. It's kind of it's a story that deals with that. Uh, and Gord Downey put some music to it, and uh, Lemire, who's like, who's really good at that kind of uh, rural type, uh, mm -hmm. Ontario, yeah, Canadian kind of story. Um, just kind of documented that and uh, it's a very moving uh, book and there isn't even a lot of dialogue just a lot of visuals mm -hmm. uh, but yeah it is like it like you, you feel it like you, it, it's a gut punch mm -hmm. yeah yeah no that's what people were telling me I, I wasn't able to get a copy but um, I'm going to try to look for it in the States it hasn't really come to the States I mean it is a particularly Canadian comic as, as I understand but it certainly sounds like it's a very universal message that you know well like I was saying like I, I mean like there's been um like Standing Rock and stuff like that in the States is kind right. of, that's kind of brought a lot of bit more attention to the plight of the Indians and like that kind of issue. And then here we've been dealing with our own things as well. And kind of like, they're starting to put more and more pressure on the government to kind of like do mm -hmm. something and like provide like drinking water, like clean oh, drinking water. Oh, like, wow. So <laughs> yeah, just little things, little things like that. Like let's have little victories like that. Yeah. Right. Uh, better schools, like our actual schools, things like that. And so, but that's like part of the how those conversations kind of get sparked, right? Sometimes people read these things like Louis Real or The Secret Path, mm -hmm. and then people are like, oh, I didn't actually know this was actually happening. Right. But that's what we were talking about a lot on Friday at the Education and Library Conference. 
was how comics are just such an incredible medium for this. And because they do speak to people on verbal level and a visual level. And to be honest, it's like if you were to make a movie about Louis Real, it might not, you know, it would cost, you'd have to have a pretty good budget to do it. And, um, you know, I mean, to raise a hundred million dollars to make a movie, probably not going to happen. Um, whereas Chester Brown can make this comic and it can really have an incredible amount of impact. Uh, there was, we were talking about some of the comics biographies, actually, I mean, about people like that's one of the really cool things about comics is that you can, you can do these biographies of people that would, you could never do a movie of because no one would ever finance it. And you can bring these people back and show how cool they were and amazing. Yeah. And then it, it, it feeds into what you're saying, which is like, it's a good way to kind of hook the kids in. Right? Yeah, like, totally. Here's a comic book. I'm like, that's my homework. Like, <laughs> all right, fine. Then, like, then you get a little bit more. Like, if you just give them a dry textbook or whatever with just the facts, and this is who Louis Real was, or like going back to Mouse, whatever. This is what the Holocaust was. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, you can read the statistics, and these many people died, and this is how they died, and the ovens, and all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, it doesn't necessarily <laughs> like move you. It doesn't mean that you're cold. It just doesn't always move you sometimes, right, right? Right, right. But then when you start to actually see the visual like story and the visual language, you're like, oh, that's actually not good at all. That's pretty evil. Yeah, yeah, it's very evil. Yeah. <laughs> and you, yeah, you, it makes you experience it a lot more directly. Yeah, so I mean, that is really like just one of the, the powers of comics. I know you asked me a question that kicked this off and I wasn't, uh, oh, it was about why I stuck with it and, you know, well, in the just 90s. Even, yeah, because I mean, at the beginning too, like it took a while for journalism, uh, journalism and criticism uh, combined for comics to properly take off, even as the medium, especially in the 80s, in the 80s, the jur- like the medium of comics was exploding and it was doing really, really well. But it took a little while for kind of like the journalism, the the criticism to kind of follow suit. Yeah, and I think right now, actually is um it's a little difficult i mean there are no scholarly journals of comics i mean they're actually i take that back there are but there are none that are popular i mean there are no magazines about comics anymore you certainly there might be a few but um they don't you know they're not very influential i mean print isn't very influential necessarily anymore um obviously people go online and um i think when we were talking about doing this you were you know alluding to the current problems of comic journalism you know it's not doesn't pay very well (laughs) and so like if you know like i've been doing it for a long time i run my own site comicsbeat.com um i do have other writers um but you know uh it's not very lucrative (laughs) i'll just put it that way it's not very lucrative and i live in new york so i mean i have to you know take on a lot of other kinds of work just to pay to be able to do it but i i love doing it so much and I see, you know, other sites. I mean, a, a site that um, so many great writers from Canada are part of is Women Write About Comics with Megan Purdy. <laughs> and they run some amazing criticism. I think that some of the best comics criticism is on that site, no question about it. Uh, and, I mean, I don't think, you know, they don't make that much money doing it, if any at all. Uh, it's certainly not sponsored or anything. It's just a labor of love for them. Yeah, so... You then uh, decide you want to go down this road, and then you start getting a couple of pieces published. And then, uh, how do then you decide to do your own thing? Then your own comics beat, like my own website. Yeah. Well, that started because um, one thing that we've jumped over here is uh, in the nineties. I was an editor. I was making comics. I worked for Disney, and then I worked for DC Comics, and. Uh, so I did work for Disney doing kids comics for Disney Adventures magazine. Then I went to DC. I did their kids comics for a while. Then I went to Vertigo where I did Why the Last Man. And, uh, but it didn't last. I didn't work for too long at DC. And then I was, uh, you know, I mean, I'll admit like Vertigo was my dream job. Editing comics for Vertigo, uh, was probably the job that I thought I was meant to do. And, um, you know, I had some hits, some misses and, uh, moved on and, um, I was like, what should I do now with my life? <laughs> mm. And some people were like, Heidi, why don't you go back to writing about comics? And I'm like, well, that's a great idea. You know, little did I know. So I had the second chance. But this was when the internet was, I don't want to say it was getting off the ground, but uh, kind of it was actually, because it was 2002 when I started doing the beat, so 15 years ago. 
Uh, Way to go. 15 years is a good run. I know. And to be doing the same kind of thing for 15 years of the internet is kind of insane and nobody does it. And when I see my peers who are still doing it, I'm kind of like, are they still doing it? What are you talking about? So I don't know. I question every day. Um, luckily for me, comics are bigger than ever, as we've been talking about. So uh, I actually went, this is actually, I guess it's kind of an interesting story. I was approached by Rick Veach, who is a cartoonist. Um, he worked on Swamp Thing with Alan Moore. He actually took over writing Swamp Thing after Alan Moore left. And he also did his own line of comics back in the 90s that was called The Heroica. And there's two books that I love, Brat Pack and The Maxim Wordle. Have you, have you heard of these? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So good. I'm so glad. Uh, but they are brilliant. There's two, I just think they are so well done and they're just not as well known as they should be. But anyway, Rick had a website about comics called The Pulse. And he said, we want to expand this and why don't you come work for us and do this? And I was like, sure. I mean, you know, he's one of my favorite cartoonists. I'm like, yeah, you can be my boss. That's great. And so me and a writer named Chad Contino, we did the pulse. Now, back in the day, there were there was Newsarama was around then and Comic Book Resources was around then. But Newsarama had just launched. It was a brand new site. And uh, because Mike Duran and Matt Brady, who did it, had been hosted at, um, you know, some other site, Silver Bullet or something. They had a different site and then they broke off and did their own thing because there was so much money. And uh, so it was very competitive. It was like the frontier. It was like the Pulse versus Newsarama versus, well, Jonah at CBR, Jonah Weiland who ran CBR. He was more of like a neutral figure. But I'll tell you, Newsarama and the Pulse, it was like the battle of the sexes because it was me and Jen versus Mike and Matt and competing for these stories. And it got heated. You know, there was some, there was some like feudy stuff that went on and not that Matt or Mike are listening to this, but if they ever did, they would be laughing, trust me, and Jen also, because uh, <laughs> they know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and But it was fun. Oh, my God, it was so fun because th- people would uh, reveal everything back then. They didn't know, right, how to be secret about stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so we got, like, even... Uh, just for an example, all right, I mean, nobody's just, okay, so Marvel was run by Bill Jemis, and they were doing their kind of new Marvel Ultimates line, but then they were launching all these new stuff, and Jen and I got wind of the fact that they were relaunching Epic Comics, and, like, we emailed a bunch of people we knew, was like, what do you know about this? And the people were all like, oh, yeah, here's what's going on, and, like, like they tell you, it says, oh, just don't use my name, and, like, you know, we got this, uh, and, like, right tomorrow, I was like, oh, is this true? And, like, oh, no comment. You know, and then we wrote this killer story that was like everything they were doing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it made like, you know, I know nowadays Bleeding Cool has that. And uh, Newsflash, almost everything on Bleeding Cool is a plant from Marvel and DC. Like, basically, they give Rich stories that he won't run other shit. So, you know, I mean, it's like, oh, Bleeding Cool has learned. Yeah, they, you learned because someone at DC told you that. So anyway, <laughs> I don't mean to destroy anybody's illusions. Um but, it's like saying wrestling's fake. Oh, I know, I know. I don't. It is fake. Uh, uh, sometimes I don't know. Uh, but yeah. So we had the story, and oh my god, there was so much. It was we got so much in. Like, oh, we're never giving you anything again. We're never going to talk to you. We're never going to give you any real stories. I'm like, well, like fine, we don't, you know. And then we went on, and then of course, you know, within a few years, it was like. Oh, you you know, if you talk to people, you are going to get fired. So, you know, freelancers quite wisely stopped telling yeah. everybody what they put. Oh, it was so great. You could run so many stories. And, you know, I remember there was this other story that um, at DC Comics, like, uh, like, basically, they like everybody at DC got free comics comps. And would trade them in at a store uh, in New York. Uh, but you technically weren't supposed to do that. So somebody got caught doing it. Because not only were they trading in. they were, So they would take their pile of comps, trade it in, get credit. And then they'd go buy like a statue or something really expensive. And then they'd sell it on eBay. <laughs> so, so they had a real, you know, maybe that's pushing a little far. And uh, there was like, you know, a big hullabaloo. People got fired. 
And I mean, I wrote the story and I called up people again. I called, I was like, whoa, what's going on? I was like, oh, I can't believe there's a cold cast statue wearing a DC. Uh, and again, you know, the story is lost to the, the, you know, the sands of the internet. Uh, but I mean, you could never write a story like this today. Like you just never could do it. You would never get people to go. I mean, not even be quoted, you know, off the record. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was a lot more fun in that way. Cause you could really break, break things. I mean, I still break stories, but it's not, it's, it's not the way we were. I mean, we were just smashing things with hammers then, you know, now it's like, oh, maybe we told you that you should write about this. And I'm like, okay, you know, and I mean, you still have to. I mean, I try to investigate, um, you know, sometimes, I mean, I do try to look into things and, and, uh, you know, once in a while do something that's really an investigative, investigative journalism as best I can. But, you know, the pulse was actually better funded. It was funded well enough to pay two people, myself and Jen. And, uh, you know, this is 15 years ago and, uh, you know, now I, that for me to spend, like a week even working on one story would just not be economically feasible. That's for almost uh, all writers now. And one of the things I like about uh, the comic speed is that you also do focus a lot on the economics of comics. Uh, You have surveys to see kind of like how much people are getting paid per page and different things like that. I think this, the the economics of comics on us also kind of circles back to what we were saying about the tropes as well. Because a lot of people will demand that they want to have like left-handed characters or more female characters or black characters or whatever mm-hmm. the the rally cry is this mm-hmm. week, and the it's just sometimes they don't also understand the economics of it. Like they've tried sometimes, like some like Gotham Academy, for example, recently I think that ended up at like about twelve issues or so, mm-hmm. and it just wasn't enough market to quote unquote sustain it. Yeah, but I, I you know what I think is really important to look at about that. You know, Gotham Academy got. Uh, canceled, and so did all those other comics that weren't about quote you know more progressive characters. Correct. So you know I think like people have pointed to Marvel's you know Marvel's a whole other thing where we could talk for another hour about that. But um, oh, I get in so much trouble. Oh, the uh, recent diversity comments. Or? Yeah, all that. But I mean, it's <clears throat> just that. Um, I mean, I think all comics are selling badly now. You know, I mean, it's a real struggle and. And that's what, you know, there's, there's, uh, you know, DC did do certain, like, basically, when I worked at DC 15 years ago, and when I started the Pulse 15 years ago, even saying, like, women read comics is a statement that you must defend and uh, give proof. Like, where is the proof? Where, what do you mean? How can you say that? And, you know, nowadays, I mean, if you go to TCAF, it's like at least 50% is women. I mean, probably more than 50% of the exhibitors are female creators or mm-hmm. or non-binary creators or trans creators. Like, um, certainly not just cis men creators at all. And so, I mean, you have to have material that appeals to different different groups, you know. But, I mean, I think... I think there's a certain reactionary crowd in comics that just, uh, you know, obviously it's not for them. And uh, you have to have all that. But I think you have to grow. You know, that's the whole message of the beat is there's all these other markets outside comic shops. There's libraries. There's indie bookstores. There's Amazon. There's right, Barnes & Noble. I know. What's your what's your book chain up here? Uh, Chapters Indigo. Yeah. Is that still around? Or Yep. Yeah, so that's our big one. That's our only one, really. Right. We, we have a couple of smaller ones like Book City, uh, but yeah, chapters in to go. And our library is fantastic. They have an amazing graphic novel collection. Right. Right. So yeah. That allows people to kind of try stuff as well that maybe you wouldn't necessarily go down that road, because uh, then you don't have to necessarily invest any money or whatever. Right. Right. So uh, yeah, I mean the library, but but you know every book that's in a library was purchased. I right. mean that's the great thing about libraries is they have budgets, so they spend money. So um, you know, getting getting people to to kind of be aware of these, you know, Marvel for all their their flaws um, has done a really great job getting some of their books into Scholastic book fairs. I don't know if you have those up here, mm-hmm. but okay, yeah, you do. So these are uh, for kids. They sell a lot of books. They're, the books are discounted, so it's not like you make you know, $10 per volume sold, maybe you make a dollar, but you sell like 200,000 copies. So it can be very like, like for a publisher to get into the scholastic book fairs, usually like, woohoo, 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's really exciting for them. And, you know, Marvel's gotten in there. And guess what? Kids like Marvel. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. That is a brain, you know, how did that ever happen? Got some good investigative journalism. Yep. Yes. There you go. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yep. Uh, that is a scoop. Yeah. One of the interesting things with our uh, library system <clears throat> is when you reserve a book, uh, like a, a graphic novel or a trade or whatever, it'll tell you uh, where you are in the list, like how much demand there is uh, for it. And I'm always kind of surprised at some of the books because some of the books seem a lot more people talk about them. Um, uh, Gwen, uh, what's her name? The Gwen, she's the spider girl. Gwenpool. Gwenpool, Yeah. Uh, it just seems a lot more popular, but then when you look at how much is reserved or whatever, it's only like ten or twenty people or whatever. And like you think there'd be a lot more demand for it. Yeah. Wait, where's this website? It's on our Toronto Public Library. So oh my you... god! Yeah. To, to the internet, Robin. Oh yeah. my god! I am all over this. So, I am all over this. So it's interesting as a kind of informal way of like kind of gauging. But again, then some of the stuff for like Batman, you'll see uh, eighty, ninety, hundred demand. Like hundred people want to reserve like mm -hmm. a Batman book, new Tom King stuff, whatever. So you'll kind of like. That's kind of pretty consistent, but it's just the other stuff that's a little bit more off the off the. Well, yeah. So as an informal kind of thing. Yeah, but I mean, you know, at some point you're not you, you can't reinvent the wheel. I mean, you don't have to, you know. Um, I mean, as we alluded to at the start of this podcast, you know what? Batman's a great character, mm -hmm. and he is rooted in pain. And uh, my theory is very radical that because he is rooted in pain is why he is a great character, and. You know, that is why, I mean, Batman just appeals to so many people. And guess what? There's been an awful lot of really good Batman books. Um, You know, even some that are very controversial, like The Killing Joke, obviously. But, you know, Alan Moore is a great writer. Brian Bolland's a great artist. Um, That book anyone can read, Um, as dark as the message is and as, as you know, troubling as the storyline is with, with Barbara Gordon. Uh, it's still very accessible to people. So that's why it keeps speaking to new generations. For better or worse. And so with your work now, are you also hoping to kind of uh, illuminate some of the stuff that's going on? Because like you said, when you were at TCAF, there's a ton of stuff that's going on. And I know a lot of comic book kind of uh, chatter kind of focuses on the big two. I guess big three, if you want to throw an image as well. They've been kind of growing the last couple of years. Uh, is it kind of to get away from some of that stuff and then kind of focus on more of the indie stuff? Or you want, are you trying to balance between the two? Well, I think if you run a website about comics, you're always going to have to cover Marvel and DC because that is the most, you know, it's the pop most popular stuff. It's the biggest characters, the longest running. Um, but, you know, Image is huge, huge, huge. I mean, Walking Dead, I'd argue, is as big as anything, anywhere, anytime, obviously. And um, for me personally, my favorite publishers are still Fantagraphics and Running Quarterly and Koyama Press and like indies, very small, like Retrofit is a publisher uh, that's run by Box Brown. And they put out all these little comics that are kind of like little chapbooks, I'd almost say. Uh, they put out a book last year called Libby's Dad by Eleanor Davis that has won a bunch of awards. Um, and it's uh, about kids who are at a pool party. And there's a rumor about Libby's dad, whether he has a gun or not. And uh, it's maybe only 32 pages long. It's not very long. And they kind of go through this whole, it's an amazing story in uh, that deals with childhood themes, violence, and, you know, it's deep. It's deep. Um, there's a book that came out of the show by uh, Jillian Tamaki, uh, who is a Canadian cartoonist. You know, you Canadians are taking over. <laughs> well, you mentioned Drawn and Quarterly. That's a fantastic like, yeah. uh, out in Quebec. Uh, it's a fantastic publisher. Yeah. And um, yeah, and even at TCAF, you get to see a lot more of the Canadian talent. I mean, it's its its own kind of, in a weird way, subgenre. You're talking about like there's like queer comics, there's mm -hmm. like uh, French comics, mm -hmm. and then like Canadian kind of comics right. is almost like another subgenre. Yeah. Like. yeah, well, you have a plethora of really great publishers here. Drawn and Quarley, Koyama Press, as I mentioned. Conundrum is great. That's right. Um, there's uh, another one whose name I can't remember. <laughs> Um, so, but, but yeah, and the cartoonists, like I say, um, even the people that are dominating at uh, Marvel and DC too, there's a lot of Canadians. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Lemire is doing a ton of stuff. For, oh yeah. Yeah. You know, Chip Zdarsky, he's done really yeah. well. Um, you know, there's, uh, there's a bunch. Um, absolutely. Uh, but Jillian Tamaki is, uh, her book is out for Nirvana Quality. It's called Boundless. It's a collection of her short stories. Uh, to me, this is my book of the year, um, thus far. Just her stuff is like, it's like Alice Monroe or, you know, Raymond Carver or 
Uh, I mean, you name it. These are short stories that are searing and powerful and like just cover so many topics. I mean, the, some of them are very, I mean, some of them, they're not direct. I mean, it's not like, you know, a page panel one. Yeah. I mean, you have to really put a lot into reading her stuff, kind of work at it, but it's her drawing is so amazing. And just her storytelling is just incredible. So I, I can't recommend that book enough. Boundless. I think it debuted at TCAF. It'll be out in shops in a couple of weeks, actually. So if people wanted to kind of follow up on uh, some of these threads and some of the work that you're doing, where can they find you online? Okay. Well, I'm on comicsbeat.com. That's C-O-M-I-C-S, comics, beat, B-E-A-T. Uh, or if you just Google beat Heidi, it will come up. Um, and so uh, that is my daily website, although uh, I haven't posted today because I'm here doing this. And uh, Thank but you for coming in. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. Uh, it's great for me after I go to a show to just kind of talk about things and kind of process yeah process it by by talking about it um so comic speed every day i have wonderful writers there um we run sales charts if you like like wonky stuff that is kind of something that we specialize in like we like to run sales charts we talk a lot about retailing so we have a lot of nitty-gritty behind the scenes like kind of a little by maybe like deadline but we also have interviews uh one thing what you were talking about uh comics um this year, we've done a feature that's called uh, Free Comics, a year of free comics. So I tried to do it every day. I didn't do it while I was traveling. So, But I'm going to go back and I'm going to do it all. But every day, links to, to comics. And for me, it's like, you know, some of them are comiXology. Like, you can download all these Batman black and white stories from comiXology for free. And then there's web comics that you might not have heard of and just good stuff. So anyway, that I, I you know, having a lot of fun with that. Uh, that I'm on Twitter. I'm at Comics Ace, C O M I X A C E. And if you, I'm Comics Ace like everywhere on Twitter, on Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, uh, you know, Vine. I was on Vine as Comics Ace. I You're love, really hip for somebody who's using a typewriter not so long ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I see what the kids are doing and yeah. I copy it uh, successfully or unsuccessfully, much more likely. But yeah, Comics Ace, you'll find me everywhere. Thank you, Heidi, for coming in and talking comics and stuff. We didn't. We just kind of scratched the surface. Yeah. And, uh, well, I love to blab, as you might have noticed. So yeah, I know. can just like <laughs> just turn the mics on and just gone and made a sandwich. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Just well, you. yeah. But this is great. No, I, thank you for having me. This is really. I'm. I'm glad to be here in Toronto and um, you know, uh, talk on the talk about comics. That's all. That's what I love doing. Thank you.